two things we're going to look at now. We're first of all going to look at the church's mission. What is the church's mission collectively? And then secondly, we're going to look at the individual mission. What are you and I supposed to do in response to cancel culture individually? All right, so the first one, what is the church's mission? The church's mission is to preach the word. It, the church's mission doesn't change. It doesn't matter how illegal what the church's message is becomes. The church must always preach the word without apology. And you'll know if you've been coming here long enough that one of our four pillars is unapologetic preaching. We do not apologize. Creatures do not apologize to other creatures for what the creator has said. So Timothy was told by Paul, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, this is 2 Timothy 4, by the way, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, rebuke, reprove, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. So in other words, preach it even when they don't want to hear it. Even when they don't think they need it, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have, having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. You're going to tell me the Bible's not a living book? That it doesn't speak into every society? Speak into every situation? I, I just have to read that. It's pretty clear right away exactly what that's talking about in 2021. Now, we're going to look at the Bible for a few minutes to find out what that means to be unapologetic in preaching the word. So I want to just give a reminder. Many of you might know this already, the uniqueness of the Bible. Just what is so special about the Bible? This is always good to give to people at work or at school who might ask you, you know, what's so special about the Bible? It's just another book. Is it just another book? Do you know what the Bible is? Most people won't know. They don't know what's in it, and they don't know what it is. But it is a book that is made up of 66 different books. Those books were written over three different continents, in three different languages. We already talked about that, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Over a period of 1,500 years, that's a long time. Do you remember what was going on 1,500 years ago? Do you know those people? Do you know anything about those people? Probably not. So these guys were not all sitting in the same room at a conference table discussing how they were going to make a new cult. That's not what they were doing. 40-plus different authors and these authors, by the way, were, they came from different backgrounds, different cultures, different lifestyles, different ranks. Some of them were kings. Some of them were shepherds. Some of them were farmers. Some of them were fishermen. Some of them were scholars. They were all over the map. They came from different personalities. They had different emotional states. Some were a little more consistent. Others were up and down and so on. But one remarkable theme that they all agree on, and it is unified through the entire text of Scripture, Jesus Christ, the full revelation of God to man. So try that out on people. It's not really a proof of what the Bible is, but it's always fun to give to people and say, do you really know what the Bible is? What's so special about the Bible? Try this. You tell me what the chances are of that many authors over that much time 
in different parts of the world, speaking different languages, agreeing all together on a man they'd never met. Some of them had met him. Some of them had never met him, but they described him. They described him perfectly. The Bible is not just some other book. It's unique. We're not embarrassed by it. We don't preach it with apolog- by a, and apologize for it. We preach it. We're confident in it. Well, what are we going to do? How, how, what will this be marked by? Unapologetic preaching is, first of all, marked by the centrality of the Bible. This is what we call expository preaching. What is expository preaching? It's when the message of the text is the message of the sermon. The message of the text, in other words, the message of the text in Scripture is the message of the sermon. We should be walking away from a sermon saying, now I know what the Bible says. Not merely, now I know what the preacher said. Or walking away, scratching our head saying, I'm not really sure how he got that out of there. Now I know what the Bible says. It's explained to me now. I see it. That's exactly what happened in Nehemiah 8. When Ezra the scribe, he blessed the Lord, the great God. There was a whole congregation of people and he had all these men around him that were men who knew the book just like he did. What did they do? They helped the people to understand the law. That's their job. That's a preacher's job. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. The Bible is central. That's why if you notice every week, Pastor Aaron holds the Bible in his hands. He doesn't leave it. I'm not trying to read into symbolism and stuff, but listen, Too many preachers are straying away from the Bible into their own opinions and their own pet peeves and their own perspectives of things. But the Bible must be central if preaching is going to be unapologetic. We believe in the historical grammatical interpretation of Scripture. Okay, that's a term maybe you've never heard before. It's a little more of a scholarly term, historical grammatical. What does that mean? Well, that means, first of all, that we focus on the text of Scripture, the words, the phrases, the paragraphs, the book, the genre. That's all grammatical, right? We, we study the text. That's central. Liberal theologians look behind the text. They look at what's going on around the text. They look at the history. But Historical grammatical means we look at the text first. The historical part means that we look at the text as it was intended in its historical setting. Okay, so what are we doing? We understand that the text was written by an original author. And we want to understand, and oftentimes the text itself tells us what the original author intended, right? Not only that, We also understand that it was written for an original audience who heard it. So we're looking for two things. We're looking for who are the audience, what's going on. Often that's in the text as well. Okay. And what did the author mean for them? What was he trying to convey to them? Once we understand that, we can bridge it into our own culture and our own setting, and we can apply it to ourselves. And that application can be given in many, many, many different ways. One interpretation, many applications. That's the idea behind the historical grammatical interpretation of Scripture. 
That's what we believe here. The text is the boss. The text rules, and we don't apologize for it. Secondly, the authority of the Bible, which simply means that the Bible's words are God's words. Not everyone believes this. Okay, so I'm going to spell out some differences here tonight, and I understand there might be some different people from different traditions in the room, but I'm going to explain just our differences and where they come from because our differences are originally based on the authority we look to. Okay, so liberal theology, the definition of authority for liberal theologians, which is, was more of a big thing in the 20th century, where they kind of dissected the Bible and looked around it and looked at the forms of it and so on. And eventually they kind of come to a conclusion, well, it doesn't mean what it says. That's kind of where they came from. But their definition of authority was basically reason and experience plus scripture, right? So my own reason, my own human thinking over here, plus scripture, and somewhere in there, I'm going to get to something that God is saying to me. The Roman Catholic tradition definition of authority puts church tradition and scripture together. So church tradition, what has been passed down through uh, many different leaders in the Roman Catholic Church, plus scripture come together. And from that, we get our authority in the church. Now, the evangelical definition of authority that we hold to here at Harvest is somewhat different because what we believe and uh, I say evangelical kind of loosely because that's become kind of a jelly term these days, okay? But I'm not sure exactly what term to come to. Maybe it, <laughs> I would say biblical, but uh, we'll, we'll leave that where it's at. Um, the scripture, here's what we believe. The scripture stands outside and above all other viewpoints and claims. The scripture, the text, it stands outside. We don't look to uh, church tradition. While we do look to church tradition to inform us, it is always about the text. It's always about how does this match up with the scriptures, with the text, and so on. So the evangelical definition of authority is that the scriptures stand outside and above every other viewpoint and claim. Now, we can have the discussion about uh, about differences in belief, but we have to understand at least those are our differences. We see a different authority. We do. So the Westminster Confession of Faith, which we would adhere to it, uh, from, for the most part in this uh, aspect of Scripture, their view is that the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, Doctrines of men and private spirits are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the scripture. That's it. It's the authority of the Bible. The Bible, what the Bible says, God says. Next, the clarity of the Bible. There's been a big assault on this in our world in postmodern uh, society where people are often guessing or second-guessing the scriptures and saying, yeah, but really, is it that clear? You can't really know. And 
Who can really know who God is? You know, the Bible is really just a bunch of human musings on the transcendent, but none of us can really understand. In fact, there's an old fable, maybe you've heard of the six blind men uh, and the elephant and the six blind men are all touching different parts of the elephant. One touches the tusk and one touches the leg and one touches the ear and one gets a hold of the tail and they're all touching different parts of the, the, the elephant and they're all coming away with different conclusions. You know that the one who's touching the, the leg thinks it's a tree trunk and the one who's holding the ear thinks it's a fan and so on. And uh, modern liberal theologians have come up with the idea uh, this is kind of the emergent church movement. They kind of uh, pressed this, Rob Bell and his gang. They were kind of saying, you can't really know. I mean, God's so big and we're, we're so blind. We can't really see clearly who he is and so on. And, and so therefore we're all coming away with different conclusions and that's okay, that's okay. In the end, love wins, you know, that kind of teaching that has come out. No, no, that's not true. Deuteronomy 30, Moses is talking about talking to the people before they go into the promised land. And he says to them, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. By the way, Paul uses this again in Romans chapter 10 to say almost the same thing. He says, it's not in heaven that you should say, well, who's going to ascend to heaven for us and bring it down to us that we might hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, well, who's going to cross the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But Moses says, the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. And Paul even goes further. He, he takes this scripture and he applies it to his time period and says, listen, the people of Israel have the word of God. They have everything they need to know that Jesus is the Messiah. They have it already. It's clear to them. It's in their heart and in their mouth. It's there. All they need to do is confess Jesus is Lord and so on. It's clear. The Bible is not the musings of humans. Kevin DeYoung actually, uh, he commented on the parable of the blind, man and, uh, the blind man and the elephant. And he said, yeah, but the difference is what if the elephant could speak and say, I'm an elephant. It makes all the difference in the world. So if God wrote a book and in that book, he witnesses to his own son, Jesus Christ, and he tells us who he is, then to question the clarity of the Bible is to question the ability of God to communicate to us. So if we question it, we're questioning God. This refers back to William Tyndale's desire that all people, even the boy that driveth the pow, plow, pardon me, should have access to the clarity of scripture. That's what he wanted. I just want people to know what it says and to be clear on it. We are all individually responsible. The clarity of scripture also means that we are all individually responsible to directly follow the teachings of Christ in scripture. They're not unclear for us. You can pick up a Bible in the English language, you can read it, and you can get the sense of what the message is in it, who God is, what he demands of us, what he says to us, what he says about his son, Jesus Christ, and you can read it and come to very clear conclusions about salvation and about faith and about eternal life. And the last one is the sufficiency, I think it's the last, uh, the sufficiency of the Bible. What does this mean? Well, it means that the Bible is enough. It's everything we need 
to live a life of faith and godliness. It's everything that we need to be saved, to understand and know God's redemptive power in our lives, to be born again, to encounter and experience the salvation of Jesus Christ personally. It's enough. It's everything we need. It's important to know that this connection that is deeply linked between God's redemption through Jesus Christ and God's revelation through the Bible. So listen, when God accomplished his redemption in Christ at the cross, it was at the very same time period that he accomplished his revelation to us of who Jesus is and what he is doing. Listen to Hebrews 1. Long ago, the Hebrew writer starts, Hebrews 1, chapter 1, verse 1. At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word, notice, the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. If we want to know God, we must look at Jesus. He's the exact imprint of his nature. And if we want to know Jesus, we must look at the scriptures. And after the eyewitnesses who wrote the New Testament scriptures were all dead and gone, the scriptures are complete. We have everything we need because we can see Jesus and we can see him clearly. That's where it stops. This is under attack. It's actually under attack, not just in cults. It is under attack in cults where men show up and say, oh, there's one book God left out and I've had the illumination and I've wrote, written it. So therefore everyone must follow me because Jesus said so. But even in evangelical circles, we have seen this attack on the sufficiency of scripture, such things as you know, books that have to tell us what heaven's going to be like or what hell's going to be like because someone went and got this extra knowledge that isn't in the Bible of heaven and so on. It's very, very subtle. It's very subtle what's going on, but things are being added to the Bible. Or people that have written books. Um, I remember when Sarah Young wrote Jesus Calling. It was a big book, and, and certainly there's a lot in it that's wonderful. But the very notion behind it is that Sarah Young believed that she could sit really quiet and tune into a certain frequency in her mind, and God would speak direct statements into her mind, and she was writing them down. That sounds a lot like biblical inspiration, folks. That's scary. And as good as it sounds, and as in many Christian bookstores as it might be on the shelves, doesn't make it right. We believe the Bible is enough. It's all we need. And we stick to that and we preach it without apology. And you'll notice, actually, before we get there, uh, Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, he talked about this when he said, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. 
Why? That the man of God may be complete. What does the work of making us complete? All scripture. Why? Because it's breathed out by God. The Bible's words are God's words. We need to nail that home. And as a church, we need to stand behind that and not be embarrassed by it or apologize for it. The Bible cannot be canceled. Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus said, but my words will not pass away. They couldn't stop Jesus from fulfilling scripture. By the way, that's what he did. When he was here, what did he do? He wasn't picking it apart and saying, well, scripture said this, but I'm going to correct it. No, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see he said, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. And he starts expounding what it really meant. He starts interpreting it based on its historical, grammatical meaning. That's what Jesus did. They couldn't stop Jesus from fulfilling scripture. They couldn't stop Jesus from explaining and preaching scripture. Why would we ever think that they could stop the scriptures today? So what are we going to do as a church? Going to keep preaching the word. We're not going to apologize for it. We're going to keep preaching the word. We're going to keep pointing people to the word. You have a problem in life? The word has the answer. Let's get together and have a conversation. We have everything we need in the word. It's here. And folks, I've been, I've been a believer long enough and I've been ministering to people long enough to see that the word has everything we need. Everything. It's enough. We preach it without apology. All right. The Christian mission, personal witness. All right. How do we get along with our neighbors? How do we speak into this cancel culture? How do we respond to a world that doesn't want us or our message? How do we do it? What do we do? Well, this is kind of building on some of the things we've already looked at in weeks gone by with individual responsibility. The first week we looked at how to be a witness for Christ and how to present worldviews and so on. So we're not going to go back and repeat all of that. You can go back and see that. That is all online. But the first thing we're going to look at is the fact that we need to discern when to speak and when to be silent. There are times to speak. There are times not to speak. Quite often, cancel culture wants us to say certain things we are not going to say. And you see this example in Christ, that there are times when his silence spoke more powerfully than his words. John 8, the woman caught in adultery, is one situation where he stooped down to the ground and started to write in the sand. I have no idea what he was writing in the ground. Uh, but as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. With those words, he just bent down and kept writing. Why did he do this? He understood the function of their consciences. He understood how the Holy Spirit works. He understood that their minds have an inner preacher that can work at times as well. Listen, it, it, when he went to the cross... And he stood in front of Pilate. Pilate kept asking him questions and he remained silent. We need to discern when to speak up. And we need to speak up. And how to speak up. But then how to be silent as well. To be very careful with our words. 
not so that we don't get canceled, but so that when we do speak truth, that it matters, that it's impactful. Secondly, we need to look for social outcasts, others who've been canceled that may not know Christ. We need to look for the J.K. Rawlings of the world and the Don Cherries of the world, the small business owners of the world that are being oppressed right now, like really oppressed, those who are truly oppressed and canceled. Look for them, associate with them. Isn't that what Christ did? The tax collectors, the sinners, they were on the fringe of society. They were the canceled ones of society. They were all drawing near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And as Christians, we are called to reach these people. Why do we have to worry about status? Why do we have to go after? It is okay if you can get to a position of status. That's wonderful if you can use it for God's glory. That's great. But we also need to be careful that we are all the time connecting with the fringe, with those who are on the outskirts, those who have already been silenced, those who have already been impressed, and reach them for Christ. And that means, it just brings to mind the story of, I um, can't remember, Prison Fellowship Ministries, Chuck Colson, how the Lord actually allowed him to go to prison for some of the crimes that he committed while he was in the Nixon administration during the Watergate scandal. He ended up in prison wondering, how is this fair? I don't understand why God is doing this. But he realized while he was in prison and he started a ministry in the prison, Bible studies with individuals that were coming to him. They found out he was a Christian. They started asking him questions and he was starting to relate with people. And he understood, I would never be able to relate with these people had I never been sent to prison. Sometimes we need to be canceled so that we can relate to those who have already been there. Otherwise, we will have no connection with them, be ineffective. Next, have nothing left to lose. Have nothing left to lose and everything to gain. Jesus said in Mark 8, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Take up his cross. Do you know what a cross was? It wasn't just a gold necklace. It meant if, you, if, the, if the Roman soldiers came, knocked on your door, and they had a cross, the beam of a cross with them, that you would take up and carry, it meant you were saying goodbye to everything in life. For whoever, Jesus said, would save his life will lose it. And that includes reputation, that includes status, that includes job, and so on. Whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Sounds a lot like Jim Elliot saying you can't, you stop trying to gain what you can't keep. For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Sounds familiar. Of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father and with the holy angels. So what do we need to do? We need to examine our lives tonight, not tomorrow, tonight. We need to sense if the Holy Spirit is in us right now, moving, convicting us, examine our lives, our possessions, our relationships. Is there something we're clinging to? It was actually a statement by Corey Ten Boom that I heard 
in 2004 that dropped me. I mean, it literally dropped me. I was a puddle under the weight of these words as I was wrestling with God's call in my life, but wanting comforts and conveniences of life at the same time. And I heard this phrase that she had said at one time. She said, I have learned, and this was a lady who had been through the Holocaust, had been through the the concentration camps in Germany and so on. And she said, I have learned to hold loosely to the things of earth so that it doesn't hurt as much when he pries them out of my hands. It's like Ronald Spears and Band of Brothers. I don't know how many of you have seen the HBO series Band of Brothers, but was he a captain, I think? Uh, one of the paratroopers. He's talking to one of, the, one of the younger guys that is really struggling with fear, that every time he hears the gunfire, he just cowers in his foxhole. And Ronald Spears says to him, he says, the only hope you have is to accept the fact that you're already dead. And the sooner you accept that, the sooner you'll be able to function as a soldier is supposed to function. I heard that phrase and I thought immediately, that is the Christian life right there. The sooner you accept you are already dead to your own interest, to your own self, the sooner you accept it, the sooner you can function as a Christian soldier is supposed to function. You have nothing left to lose. Next is no compromise. Like Joshua said before he heard the opinions of anyone else in Joshua 24, he said, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers that that your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Don't wait till tomorrow. Resolve in your heart right now what you are living for and never compromise on your conscience. The apostle Peter learned this the hard way, didn't he? When he was under pressure, I don't know him. I certainly don't want to be on the cross next to him. He learned the hard way. Be prepared to suffer. Here's the next one. John 15, Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. By the way, Jesus is saying this just a few hours before he is to be executed himself, crucified. He says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. Let those words sink in. Jesus is saying, I, I take those words and I think to myself, how often have I, thought I'm, I'm, have I thought I'm above Jesus? That I don't really think I need persecution. But Jesus says, the servant's not above his master. If they've persecuted me, what makes you think they shouldn't persecute you? Those are searching words. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin and so on. And, and, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. So remember, 
And by the way, when these apostles who heard those words, you know, kind of sinking in, kind of not, this is all new to them. They're not really sure what's going on. Jesus goes to the cross, he dies. They're in complete despair at this point. The world has crashed in on them. And three days later, as they're hiding in their bunkers, someone comes along and says, hey guys, I was just at the grave. Something very strange is going on, it's empty. And then, uh, you know, Mary's coming along and saying, I saw Jesus, and it's pretty soon there are witnesses coming along saying, we saw Jesus walking around. He was talking with us. He was eating bread and so on. And um, all this strange stuff going on. You got Thomas kind of holding out for another week. You know, he's all locked up on himself and, and not letting anyone close by. And the, the week following, he's there. And unless I can put my finger right into the wounds, I'm not going to believe and so on. In other words, seeing is not enough for me, right? I love the fact that these witnesses were so deadly serious about knowing that it was for real. They checked and they double-checked and they cross-examined and so on. Good to know, isn't it? And when they first felt their first bit of persecution, what did they do? Oh, this is horrible. Can we go home? Can we get off? Can we quit the team? Can we give our t-shirt back? No, they rejoiced. They began singing. Why? Because what Jesus said was actually coming true. And they're like, well, this is legit. This is actually happening to, him, to us just like he said it would. God is at work. This is amazing. Be prepared to suffer. Now, that doesn't mean we're always going to suffer. It doesn't mean always looking over your shoulder and so on. It doesn't mean that. If we follow the principles of scripture and so on, we can live a, a, and we are supposed to seek a peaceable life. Don't forget that. But we need to balance this out. For the Christian living in a broken world, suffering is promised, especially right now. We need to understand, especially in our culture right now, this is not something to be unexpected. This is something Jesus said would happen. Suffering produces fruit in our lives and it deepens our trust in God. It has many good things to offer to us. The final one, don't give up. Don't give up. Keep walking one step at a time. Cancel culture can be very discouraging. Our culture right now, just going through the last few weeks, uh, these lessons and realizing how long these cultural walks through the institutions have been taking. They're relentless. They don't stop. And they seem to be gaining and they seem to be advancing and they seem to be winning. And we just kind of want to stay in bed. Why get out in the morning? And Paul, after musing for a while and discussing the resurrection for a while and how Jesus' resurrection links to the Christian resurrection and the expectation that we have that our bodies will be raised and become a completely new form, a completely new quality that we can't even imagine right now. He gets to the end of it all and he says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. You know, last week we talked about Elijah up on Mount Carmel. We didn't talk about the rest of the story. I just want to share that for a brief moment. 
So 1 Kings 18 is Elijah and Mount Carmel and what Elijah was able to demonstrate with the truth. That's amazing. Um, you can go back and see last week if you missed that. But 1 Kings 19 sends Elijah into a tailspin of discouragement because he finds out that everything he did on Mount Carmel and everything that God demonstrated on Mount Carmel had zero effect on the culture. And Jezebel's after him now, going to seek again to cancel him no matter what. And he tears off running and hides in the desert. He actually asks the Lord, please kill me. So he's got some, you might call them suicidal thoughts going on. Life is over for him. What's the use of going further? He ends up on the mountain. And on the mountain, uh, a number of things happen. There's an earthquake, there's a fire and a strong wind and so on, all these great big things. And God was in none of those big things. And finally, scripture tells us there was a sound of a low whisper. And Elijah heard it. He wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave And behold, there came a voice to him that said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Well, what happened? Elijah on Mount Carmel had seen all the big things happen. Big, powerful moves of God. If anything's going to turn the culture around, it's this. And it didn't happen. And he's discouraged. And he's thinking, this is it. It's not going to happen. God comes to him in a low whisper, a small voice. I think the King James calls it a still, small voice. What is he saying? And in that voice, he says, what are you doing here? Elijah starts bemoaning and getting into his whole thing about history ends with me. You know, I've done all this. And if this doesn't work, nothing's going to work. So it's useless. I'm giving up. I'm on strike and so on. And God just very gently just says, Elijah, get up. Pick yourself up, go, and I want you to anoint this individual to be king, and I want you to go find Elisha, and I want you to take him with you, and I want you to go here and do this and go on. What's he saying? He's telling Elijah, don't give up. One small step at a time. Just take the next step in front of you. Why? Because in that low whisper, God was implying, he was telling Elijah Elijah, I'm going to do what I've always done throughout all of history. I'm just going to work through my word. It's what I've always done. Why are we always looking for the big thing? God's just going to keep working through his word. And we don't have to apologize for that. We can be confident in that. He's going to keep working through his word. Everything that's happening right now is giving us new opportunities to hear from his word. And to have more opportunities to tell more people about his word. So don't give up. God is going to continue working through his word. All right. I have no questions texted to me. We have about 10 minutes or so. But thank you for listening tonight. I don't know if we'll have time next week. Next week is on technology and self. We're going to look at how technology has changed us. We're going to look at the tension between how technology has individualized us, which the Bible has a lot to say about the value of an individual, but the Bible also makes it very clear we are not supposed to be individualistic in our thinking. We're supposed to live within community and so on. So we're going to take a good long look at social media, 
um, quite frankly, I don't have it all laid out yet, but it's all in my head. It's up here. It's got to get laid out, but that's where we're going. The week after, we're going to be looking at the sexual revolution and the attack on sexual ethics, biblical morality. Uh, I don't think you're going to want to miss that one as well. And then from there, we'll just keep plugging one step at a time. And guess what? God is just going to keep working through his word. We've seen that here at Harvest. I'm telling you, I, I think in the darkest times we faced in the last year and a half, two years, um, I think most of us are just generally encouraged right now that God's doing a great work, not just here, but throughout the land. God's working. He's working and he's going to keep working no matter what happens. So we can go with that confidence.